Good morning. In today's headlines, the polls in Brazil predicted an easy victory for one of the candidates in yesterday's election, but that election is now headed for a second round as Bolsonaro defies expectations. Rescue and recovery operations are underway in Florida. Find out what the state is doing to get things back in order. 125 people are killed in one of the world's worst ever stadium disasters. Find out what triggered Indonesian fans to head for the exits in panic. Meet the Hungarian man who is planning a house with a terrace and a view on his plot of land. After mounting construction and energy prices, he was forced to rethink. Find out what solution he's come up with. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Happy Monday, October 3rd today. We start off with Brazil. The top two presidential candidates will now face each other in a runoff vote. This after neither got enough support to win outright in yesterday's election. NTD's Daniel Monaghan has a story. It's an election that will determine whether the country swings back to the left or keeps a conservative incumbent in office. Former President Luiz da Silva had around 48% support, while President Jair Bolsonaro had 43% support. Pre-election polls had given da Silva a commanding lead. Bolsonaro had this to say about that disparity. We overcame today's lie, Datafola saying it would be 50-30. We overcame that lie. We are moving forward where all is now equal. And we will better demonstrate for the Brazilian people. Bolsonaro's administration has built a devoted base by defending conservative values, rebuffing political correctness, and presenting himself as protecting the nation from extreme leftist policies, policies that he says infringe on personal liberties and produce economic turmoil. He recently shared social media posts by conservative foreign politicians, including former U.S. President Donald Trump, who called on Brazilians to support him. And Israel's former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also expressed gratitude for stronger bilateral relations. Meanwhile, his opponent De Silva, known as Lula, is feeling confident going into the next round. I've never won an election in the first round. I've won all of them in the second round. All of them. Da Silva was once a metal worker who rose from poverty to the presidency. He built an extensive social welfare program during his 2003 to 2010 tenure. He is also remembered for his administration's involvement in vast corruption scandals that entangled politicians and business executives. De Silva's own convictions for corruption and money laundering led to 19 months imprisonment. The Supreme Court later annulled De Silva's convictions on grounds that the judge was biased and colluded with prosecutors. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro urged his compatriots in the runoff to consider how policies will shape Brazil's self-defense, freedom, and freedom of religion. The second round vote will be held on October 30th. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And now we want to bring in Marcos Schottkes for more on this live. He's the editor-in-chief of Epoch Times Brazil. It's good to have you, Marcos. Thank you for having me, Evelyn. Well, many do see the candidates as being from two very opposite ends of the political spectrum. So should Lula actually be able to take Bolsonaro's presidential seat now in the runoff election? What do you expect him to change first? Well, one thing we have to understand here is that um, Lula presents himself as a moderate on the international stage, but um, he's a hard left-leaning candidate. Um, he has ties to Fidel Castro. Well, Fidel is now deceased, but he has ties to the Cuban regime, to the Venezuelan regime, and to the Nicaraguan regime. So what I imagine him to change first is that, is that he'll probably 
make Brazil a country um, more favorable to dictatorships throughout Latin America and Africa, as it has been under him, his mandate. Um, the last time he was president from 2003 to, to 2010, and I also probably expect him to go back um, in some way to the kleptocracy scandals of the past. Let's not forget he's been convicted for corruption and is running only because he was released on procedural grounds, not on the merit of his accusations. So I expect um, the country to become more akin to China, Russia, even more than it is now, and uh, more akin to South American and African dictatorships. And first thing he'll probably do if he gets elected is getting Brazil back into multilateral organizations which support um, those authoritarian regimes, such as SELEC, the, com the community of Latin American Caribbean states. Hmm. That's certainly interesting, and I, I do imagine your answer would somewhat tie into my next question as well, because the election is getting a lot of interest from the U.S., I mean, from both sides of the political aisle. So what does the election mean for us here in the U.S.? What's the significance? Well, it, it means a lot to the U.S., and I'll explain why. Um, Brazil, under Lula, rose to be um, one of the most economic prominent countries in the third world. Brazil now, viewers in the U.S. may not notice, but Brazil is the fourth largest producer of food in the world. It holds 17% of rare earth mineral reserves, which is a key resource to produce everything from jets to microchips and anything else you might imagine in the industry. So um, Brazil is key to the U.S. from an economical perspective because it's, it holds key strategic resources. And it's a country that is more and more leaning toward China and Russia in the long run. Even under Bolsonaro, that trend um, seems to have somewhat um, stagnated, but not fully stopped. Um, and it's a trend that comes originally from the hard left-leaning presidency of Lula da Silva. Mm -hmm. So it's important to the U.S. from a strategic per perspective, but also um, because of the southern border, because Lula is friendly to a lot of the regimes who are working to basically flood the southern border. A recent report by the Center for a Secure Free Society, um, a respectable U.S. think tank, was talking about how 25% of the cocaine trade in the world goes through the Venezuelan regime, the Cartel de los Soles, as it's called. So um, it has these two main um, strategic implications. It will probably um, give the U.S. a region that's more and more aligned to China and Russia and less and less aligned with their interests. And it will also probably have consequences on the southern border, with Lula supporting many of the regimes who are sending migrants and drug traffickers there daily. Wow, yeah. And uh, before we go, I really also I want to touch on something else really quick, because I want to talk about the surge in violence that's coming from supporters of both candidates, really. So now people worry this election could de destabilize the country. Uh, what do you think will the climate be after the election? Well, I want to explain something real quick here before we move on. Um, Bolsonaro is the first right-wing candidate to rise in Brazil, really, in the last two or three decades. So um, before Bolsonaro, what we had was left-wing moderates running off against um, hard-left candidates, plus social democrats, as they call themselves, but really moderate leftists running against the hard leftists, Lula's Workers' Party. So um, under the corruption scandals, when they arose in 2014 and 2016, their highest point, and Dilma Rousseff, Lula's candidate, um, at the time was impeached. She was in the presidency. Um, Brazil was really, really looking for an alternative to the left-leaning situation it had been in years. This is a mostly Christian, mostly conservative population, and they really had no political expressions. It's what we call the scissors, the scissors theater, um, in which two parts work as part of the same mechanism. 
they're going off and on against each other, but they're really cutting off everything else that's not in that mechanism. So um, polarization might seem bigger because before candidates were really discussing how they would get to socialism. Now they're discussing whether they will get to socialism. So it's natural that the opposition grows bigger. Now, it's not as tough as it, as it may sound in the international press, because many of those reports are really pinpointing isolated cases of violence and trying to make them look political, when really they might not be. So I think it's a bit exaggerated uh, internationally. Okay, uh, very interesting insights. Thank you so much, Marcos Schottges from Epoch Times Brazil. I really appreciate it this morning. Thank you, Evelyn. There is a heart-wrenching tragedy that happened in another part of the world. Indonesia has suffered one of the world's worst stadium disasters, with officials saying that at least 125 people have died in a riot and a crush after a match on Saturday. It is one of the world's worst ever stadium disasters. The tragedy unfolded on Saturday in Malang, in the province of East Java, after home side Arema FC lost 3-2 to Persebaya Surabaya. East Java police chief Nico Afinta said frustrated Arema supporters invaded the pitch. Officers responded by firing tear gas in an attempt to control the situation, triggering the crush and cases of suffocation. Afinta claimed officers had been attacked and cars damaged, and said the crush happened when fans fled for an exit gate. 180 were also injured. Among them was 22-year-old Mohamed Rian Dwikiono, who said many friends had lost their lives because of officers who dehumanised us. The head of one of the hospitals in the area treating patients told Metro TV that some of the victims had sustained brain injuries and that the fatalities included a five-year-old child. On Sunday, Malang residents gathered outside the stadium to lay flowers. Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, has ordered the Football Association of Indonesia to suspend all games in the top league until an investigation has been completed. World Soccer's governing body, FIFA, has requested a report on the incident from Indonesia's PSSI Soccer Association. In its safety regulations, FIFA specifies that no firearms or crowd control gas should be carried or used by stewards or police. East Java police did not immediately respond to a request for comment on whether they were aware of such regulations. Officials say 17 children, including a five-year-old, were among those killed in the stampede. Now back to the U.S., remnants of Hurricane Ian will continue to affect mid-Atlantic states this week. Heavy rain and wind are expected through the Interstate 95 corridor over the next couple of days. The National Weather Service has issued coastal flood warnings for North Carolina up to New Jersey and parts of Long Island. Water levels are expected to rise between 1 and 3 feet. It's possible that your extra rainfall during the times of high tide could affect drainage systems. That could cause flash flooding in some areas. Rescue and recovery efforts are underway in Florida. The hurricane caused widespread flooding throughout the state and confirmed deaths are now up to 80. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the disaster response. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says there's been an outpouring of support from both inside and outside the state. We've had more urban search and rescue teams responding to this disaster than any event in American history since 9-11. Uh, and so that's a massive, massive undertaking, and that's made a huge, huge difference for so many people. Despite over 2.5 million people losing their electricity from the storm, 
93% of the state now has power restored. DeSantis visited Northport in Sarasota County on Sunday. And it's not just where the almost Cat 5 winds hit. Uh, this, is a, this was a massive, slow-moving storm that dumped a historic amount of water on our communities, and a place like Northport ha has produced historic flooding. He says it has the most standing water he's seen anywhere in the state. Search and rescue crews have been sweeping through the hardest-hit areas where communications have been cut off to make sure people are safe. Elon Musk has provided Starlink receivers to the state so people can contact loved ones. DeSantis says around 20 have been set up at points of distribution where residents can pick up food and water. Evacuation operations were conducted on Sanibel Island via helicopter. The island has been cut off from the mainland after its causeway collapsed, making it hard to get supplies in. Parts of Arcadia are underwater and a nearby highway shut down. Florida's disaster recovery is expected to cost tens of billions of dollars. Counties will be 100% reimbursed for debris removal over the next 30 days. One estimate put insurance claims between $28 and $47 billion. Most of those are from flood-related water damage. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The White House says President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will see the devastation in Florida firsthand on Wednesday. The Bidens will visit Puerto Rico Monday, where hundreds of thousands of people were still without power two weeks after Hurricane Fiona hit the island. And coming up, Texas officials bring us their insight into the severity of the border crisis. Find out what they suggest Governor Greg Abbott do to secure the state's southern border. And Tesla unveils a prototype of its humanoid robot. Find out what plans the company has for the technology and at what price it will be available. It may surprise you. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD Good Morning. Good to have you back. Trouble down south. For the first time ever, arrests at the southern border have exceeded 2 million in one fiscal year. In August alone, there were over 200,000 apprehensions. A county attorney and a county sheriff from southern Texas share what they are dealing with on the ground. Here are the details. The Dallas Jewish Conservatives, an events-based political organization, hosted a panel on the border crisis on Sunday. Among their speakers were Kinney County Attorney Brent Smith and Goliad County Sheriff Roy Boyd. Here's what they had to say about the severity of the border crisis in their counties. We have so much human trafficking, human smuggling, um, evading arrests, stash houses. You know, right now in the county, we have over 7,000 criminal offenses that are being prosecuted. Wow. That's criminal trespass and the ones I just named. So our judicial system is slammed. I think before the border crisis, we would have six cases a month. And now we're at about four to 500 a month. Kinney County has a population of just 3,000. It sits on the border with Mexico near Del Rio, Texas. Goliad County has a population of 7,000 and is situated between San Antonio and Corpus Christi. The cartels ruthlessly control the border and they make sure that everybody who comes to, through that border pays them their money. And if they don't, they kill them. And how do we know that? Because they found train car loads of dead people in Mexico that they tried to sneak across the border without paying the cartel. Here's what the county attorney suggests Texas Governor Greg Abbott do about the border crisis. Under the Constitution, under Article 1, every state reserved the power to self-defense. If actually invaded or threatened with imminent harm, 
That's what the disaster declaration that we're talking about, the, the invasion declaration that we're talking about does. Governor Abbott can invoke that Article One authority and secure the border. It's not on the basis of immigration. He's not on enforcing immigration law. The speakers are asking Texans to pay attention to the border crisis and ask their lawmakers to take action. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. In a very different story now, United Airlines is pausing service at New York's JFK Airport at the end of October. Just weeks before that, the airline threatened to pull service from the airport if the FAA did not give it additional slots. United Airlines resumed service to JFK in March 2021 after a five-year hiatus. The airline says the halt in service is temporary, but won't say how long it will last. It comes as a busy winter travel season is about to begin, but United says its schedule at JFK is too small to remain competitive. United's 100 employees at Kennedy International will be transferred to nearby airports. United customers who fly through JFK after October 29th will be rebooked. In other news, three U.S. postal workers have been arrested in a $1.3 million fraud and identity theft scheme. The Justice Department accuses the postal employees and a civilian accomplice of stealing credit cards in the mail. According to the DOJ, the credit cards were then used at a variety of high-end retail stores in New York and New Jersey. The Department of Justice says five other individuals involved in the fraud and identity theft scheme still remain at large. The charges carry lengthy prison sentences if the defendants are found guilty. And OPEC members will consider a proposal to cut oil production by 1 million barrels a day when they meet Wednesday. They will be meeting in person in Vienna for the first time since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. OPEC, along with Moscow-led allies, are collectively known as OPEC+. The group is pursuing the strategy as the economic slowdown has hurt demand. A cut of a million barrels per day would be the most drastic reduction in oil production since the pandemic began. OPEC countries are hoping to move. The move will help prop up falling oil prices, but the measure could hurt the global economy. Moving to tech, Tesla CEO Elon Musk on Friday unveiled a prototype of a humanoid robot. The electric car maker looks to produce millions of units and sell them for less than a third of the price of a Model Y. Our goal is to make um, a, a useful humanoid robot as quickly as possible. This is designed to be an extremely capable robot, but made in, in very high volume, probably ultimately millions of units, um, and it, it is expected to cost much less than a car. Musk predicts the electric vehicle maker would be able to produce millions and sell them for less than a third of the price of a Model Y, which starts at around $63,000. Tesla is pushing to design and build mass market robots that would also be tested by working in its factories. That sets it apart from other manufacturers that have experimented with humanoid robots. An experimental test robot that was developed in February walked out to wave at the crowd on Friday. Tesla showed a video of it doing simple tasks such as watering plants, carrying boxes, and lifting metal bars at a production station at the company's California plant. Musk said a more streamlined version called Optimus would be able to walk in a few weeks. He says he expects that Tesla would be ready to take orders for the robot in three to five years. Musk, who has spoken before about the risks of artificial intelligence, says the mass rollout of robots has the potential to transform civilization and create a future of abundance. But he says it's important that Tesla shareholders have a role in vetting the company's efforts. 
Up next, a little fishy or not, an Australian man turns rare and memorable catches into displays that anglers can hang on their walls. And meet the Hungarian man who was planning a house with a terrace and a view on his plot of land after mounting construction and energy prices he was forced to rethink. Find out what solution he's come up with after the break. Welcome back. An Australian man has turned his hobby into a thriving business. He allows anglers to display a prized catch forever, and his creations are in hot demand. Here's Entity's Cost Jimenez. On every wall of Tim Butel's home in Queensland, Australia, his love of fishing is on full display. He's commissioned more than 100 fish moles, a collection of rare and memorable catches, which he hopes to one day pass on to his sons. It's become addictive virtually. We've had a lot of fun yeah, doing yeah, it and yeah. a lot of laughs, so, and the boys just love it. Matt Graves left behind a career in the mining industry to make fish and crustacean moulds full-time. It's like a trophy, so if someone catches a big dam barrow, they don't have to kill it, they can send me a photo of it, let it go, and I can recreate the fish from it. He makes a mould from real fish or even a photo, then creates a fiberglass replica and carefully paints it. A large fish can cost $2,000 and takes five days to make. Crustaceans are popular with collectors too. It's just like a big jigsaw puzzle pretty much. Trying to get them all back naturally to make them look natural is probably the trickiest part. Word has spread about the business with contacts across the state quick to give them a call when they reel in something special. Business is booming but keen anglers will have to wait. Graves is booked out for the next five months. Cost MNS. NTD News. David Zia works in Hungary's film industry. He never thought he would end up living in a yurt to escape the surging costs of living. He was planning a house with a terrace and a view on his plot of land near Budapest, but mounting construction and energy prices have forced him to rethink. The 37-year-old will soon reside in a large circular domed tent, like those used by nomadic people on the steppes of Central Asia. By the time the yurt is ready, it will be half the cost of what a lightweight construction house would have cost. I got a quote for that in the spring, and by the autumn, costs rose by another 30%, so the yurt is definitely much cheaper, and even cheaper than a normal house would have been. As far as the energy costs are concerned, even with the new prices, I will be much better off than what I'm paying now in a rented flat. His new insulated home will cover 861 square feet among the pine trees in Budakesi. He will make big savings in the yurts, which he will heat using electric wall-mounted heaters. It will even be finished before the cold sets in. Zia is one of an increasing number of Hungarians who are choosing yurts as their permanent accommodation due to the energy crisis. Petra and Mihaly Pogany, who live on a farm near Kecskemét in eastern Hungary, moved into their yurt three months ago. In their former farmhouse, they only heated one room with a wood stove, and even that got cold by the morning. Now they can use a stove and electric floor heating in their yurt, which is kitted out as well as any standard apartment. Petra, who is expecting the couple's first child, says keeping warm is more important than ever. For me, it is a huge relief that even without the floor heating, we have the wood stove, and I have no fear that we would be cold, as I know that the stove will keep us warm. They plan to live in the yurt for years, while trying to save to rebuild their old farmhouse. 
Yurt builders like Gabor Azorian say their orders have soared. He is fully booked until next summer. It is rising steeply. Some say this will stay like this in the future, probably because many people choose this, not only because of the rising energy prices, but also because of the rise in the construction prices. To build even a smaller house is not possible for less than 30 to 40 million florins. But one can have a yurt up to 80 square meters for less than 10 million florins, and you can furnish it like a family house. He estimates around a thousand yurts exist in Hungary now, with an increasing number being used as homes. Before, they were used only for tourists or people living off grid. Building a yurt up to the size of zoos would cost less than $23,400, Adorian said. That's less than a quarter of what a small house would be. He added that yurts are considerably cheaper to heat, as the air circulating in a single round space keeps warm for longer. The largest yurt takes around three days to construct. That is really cool. The closest I ever came to a yurt was hearing that a friend of mine, the mushroom farmer, wanted to live in one. <laughs> I mean, that's a really innovative idea. And 860 square feet, that's pretty big. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's pretty smart to save on heating costs. You know, Evelyn, when I was living at the homestead, before we got power in the cabin, I heated the place with a wood-burning cook stove. It did the trick in the colder months, but you know, it did cool off by morning, even though I put more wood in it before yeah, going to sleep. I can imagine. Maybe you should have just stayed in a yurt then. Oh yeah, good idea. <laughs> well, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you. Before you go, you can share your thoughts and your story at goodmorning at entity.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.